Okay, I think we're good to go. So uh, if you could just start with introducing yourself and your title. Absolutely. Um, my name is Kat Steinberg, and um, I'm the assistant director and the curator of our arts and culture collections and the head of web and media at the McClung Museum of Natural History and Culture at the University of Tennessee. So you wear quite a few hats at the museum. Yes. <laughs> Small museum versus big museum. I'm, I'm certainly happy to talk about some of those differences today. <laughs> Great. Uh, so before we get into that, how did you become interested in working in the museum field? Absolutely. Um, I went to school at um, Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. And um, because of the way that that school works, you often get to take off. It's a quarter system, so you often get to take off a quarter and go do something um, like travel or do an internship or do a study abroad. So my sophomore year, I um, decided that I, I really wanted to be in New York City. I grew up in a really small town, and I thought that would be interesting. And I didn't get to experience a lot of museums growing up unless my family traveled, which fortunately we did a decent amount of. Um, so I really wanted to see what that was like. Um, I thought that maybe I would be interested in education. I wasn't sure. Um, so I applied to be an intern at the American Museum of Natural History uh, in New York City. And I worked there um, as sort of an on-the-floor educator. We had carts, experience carts that we rolled around to the different galleries. Um, and then I also worked in a science and nature program for young children program that was housed within the museum itself. So that was really interesting. Um, and I, I made a really big career change after that in terms of the trajectory of where I went um, in working in museums. But what really changed for me is working in the Native People's Gallery in, in the American Museum of Natural History. Of course, Native American history, uh, Native history is usually relegated to like a week or a month in most public schools and a particular grade, I think usually fourth or fifth grade. And so right. you had a lot of New York City students coming in to learn about Native Americans who lived in the area and even on the island of Manhattan, of course. There's a whole famous story about how Manhattan came to be. And we were working in the gallery, and one of the first questions I would ask the kids is, are the people in this gallery still alive? And I would always be met with a resounding no. And so at oh, that wow. point, I realized that the problem was not necessarily an education problem, though, of course, that was part of it. It was really a curatorial pro problem. You know, what were the kids seeing or not seeing in that gallery that was making them immediately respond that the culture being represented and the cultures, rather, being represented within were not still around today? So I became really interested in curatorial work um, and then went on to intern at the Hood Museum of Art at Dartmouth College and then... Um, to do museum studies, a degree, a master's degree in that, um, actually in material anthropology and museum ethnography, and then continued on in my museum career in D.C. and various other places, and currently I'm in Tennessee working in, in Knoxville at our university museum here. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, sounds like, yeah, that internship was quite eye-opening. Yeah, it was definitely formative. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned you worked in D.C. Uh, you worked at the Smithsonian Institution Archives, correct? Yeah, I actually started at the Smithsonian Photography Initiative, but as the okay. title points out, it was an initiative, so it was only um, going for a period of time. And then when that program ended, a lot of my coworkers and I were absorbed into the Smithsonian Institution Archives, and so that's where I spent most of my tenure at the Smithsonian. Okay, and there you worked on the Bigger Picture blog, right? I did. I worked on um, a lot of our web projects there with my wonderful boss um, and now colleague. She's, she's amazing, Effie Capsalis. Um, and I also you know, just worked on the blog itself, worked on social media and strategy, social media strategy and web strategy in general, and then just did stuff like edit web content, you know, help out with images, and then worked on some of our broader web projects that we were working on when we were there, um, which included crowdsourcing um, field notes, transcription of field notes. Um, okay. We were instrumental in um, the Smithsonian's involvement in the Flickr Commons, which you're probably familiar with. A lot of museums right, participate yeah. in that. And then some other side projects like History Pen, who are working on getting historic images of DC and overlaying them on a map and sort of thinking about social memory and storytelling and history using those images. Great. Um, out of all of those things, at, it seems like you worked on quite a bit there as well. Um, 
is there anything that stands out there as a particularly um, interesting or your favorite uh, web-related project there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was there when the Smithsonian Institution Archives underwent their um, web redesign, and we did that with Night Kitchen, and I believe you interviewed um, one of their um, employees before in one of your all's past interviews. Um, and, and so that was really interesting to sort of see how a website um, came together and looking at wireframes and thinking about audiences and defining those audiences and, and content groups and thinking about what kinds of metrics we were going to use. Um, and, and the metrics that the archives were using really drove what we, what we produced, including the Bigger Picture blog. But the Bigger Picture blog probably at the end of the day was my favorite project just because it involved my two major passions, which are research and writing. And in a more long form, long form, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm old-fashioned, and <laughs> that I prefer long form than I do, you know, tweeting, for example. I, I prefer like, you know, several hundred words rather than 140 characters personally. So, I really enjoyed that, and I learned a lot from working on that blog because. First of all, it was really started um, by Marvin Hyperman, who's an incredible independent scholar and curator. Um, and we were doing the same thing there, but on a smaller scale, just in terms of who are the audiences for this blog? How are we going to come up with categories that hit those audiences? Um, and you know, what kinds of stories do we want to tell? And then what kind of metrics do we want to come out of that? So in that case, we were really trying to get people to learn more about the vast um, photographic archives across the Smithsonian, not just at the Smithsonian Institution Archives, because the archives is the keeper of the history of the Smithsonian, but you have photo collections at every single museum and research institution at the Smithsonian, which of course is huge. Um, right. And then our goal was to get people to interact with those photos more. Um, sometimes that meant, for example, um, getting people into albums on the Flickr Commons to help try and identify figures in a photograph. Sometimes that meant um, you know, other things like getting people interested in the stories of the archives so that people would come and actually research those objects or so that people would understand the context of some of our collections and perhaps use them for research. Because what I found, especially working with archivists, um, which was a new area for me, was that a lot of them didn't feel like it was their place to be telling stories. Um, archivists hmm. is just simply supposed to give the researcher the materials that they need and to help the researcher you know, find the materials that they need and to help preserve and take care of those materials. But most of the archivists I work with, I don't think we're used to being front and center in, in terms of um, arranging the story and telling the story. So, but the, at the end of the day, if you just have a finding aid for materials and, and it lists someone's name, if you're doing a Google search, that may or may not come up. Telling a fleshed out story about why a particular artist is intriguing or why a particular photograph tells us a lot about social memory or the way that we interpreted a period of time and, and, or history or why male scientists are depicted differently than women scientists could actually be the thread that makes a graduate student want to do a dissertation on that topic or um, catches the eye of a reporter who is working on a similar issue. So that storytelling really became an integral part of getting people to use our collections. Um, and I think you know, at the end of the day, that's really what digital and web is about. It's, it's, not, um, it's, it's to pull people in and to, and to get them to want to know more. Um, right. and, and museums, um, blogging, and of course social media as well, and web projects, um, give the viewer, give the, the visitor, the virtual visitor, um, you know, something to grasp onto that possibly gets them into your door, um, gets them doing their own research on your collections, and, and just gets them intrigued. So that, that was the project that I really liked the most, I would say. Wonderful. And I'm curious, did, how did the archivist take to you wanting them to kind of go for that bigger story? Sure, yeah. It took a while. Um, but now, if you look at the bigger picture blog, I mean, there's so many seasoned writers on there now. Um, and very quickly what happened is we just sort of um, assigned a department to write one post a month, and that felt manageable to them. And then very quickly there were people that got really excited about pulling the weirdest <laughs> object out or, or finding the weirdest item or uh, just you know a really cool story that they had learned about in their own research and, and telling that story 
um, and you know, making an album of images to go with it, making sure that the finding aid was linked up, um, that, that kind of stuff. So you know, I think that the other thing that really helped is that we did spend a lot of time on the front end, front end especially with Marvin Heiferman, strategizing um, who our audiences were going to be and then finding sort of editorial categories. So I, I think that it can't be underestimated the amount of time that it just takes to get a blog, a blog concept up and running. And then my role after that was just, you know, having regular editorial meetings to make sure that everyone knew what their assignments were, and then to get that material and sometimes edit it um, to make it shorter or to make it more readable, and then to grab all the images and, and you know, throw it all up into our content management content management system. And then I wrote myself quite a bit as well, which was really fun. Awesome. Uh, so you mentioned that the Smithsonian is obviously a much larger organization than most. Um, how does that compare to your work now at the Mukong Museum? Absolutely. Are there pros and cons to working on web content for a giant organization versus a small one? Yeah, <laughs> there definitely are. Um, the biggest difference, and especially a government position like the ones that are at the Smithsonian, but also at any larger museum, is that um, your work is pretty compartmentalized. So right. you you have your bullet point list of duties, and you really just stick with those duties. Maybe sometimes you bleed out into another area, but because your performance reviews are so linked to that, you really kind of you you don't tread on other people's territory. You stay <laughs> in your box, and and you know some of that can sometimes lead into a, a very you know nine to five mentality. And you know I don't these are my duties as assigned. I'm not doing anything else. Um, on the other hand, it gives you the luxury of the time to really focus on a concentrated set of duties that are not so diffuse um, and sometimes okay. schizophrenic. Um, and you know, you just have a lot of money at a place like the Smithsonian, <laughs> so you have the money to have someone specifically doing, um, you know, web projects. Um, and you don't have that luxury at a museum like my own now, where um, I'm the assistant director, and I'm a curator, and I'm doing all of our PR marketing, and I'm running our website, and theoretically social media. Something gives. Um, right. And so I feel like a lot of times at my current job, I end up doing especially the web work um, and the PR work poorly, because I'm just like, I, I have time to write a press release. I have time to assign a couple of social media posts. Like Maybe I'll get one up. I certainly don't have time to look at analytics for those. I don't have time to look at how that content is performing. I don't have time to um, put together specific marketing strategies or social media strategies for individual exhibitions, um, anything like that. And that's, you know, that's a real weakness. And since I am now the assistant director, <laughs> I hope to also influence um, how we allocate staff positions in the future because it's crazy to not have someone working on PR and marketing full time <laughs> at a museum like ours. <laughs> So I, I hope that that will change. Um, but on the other hand, wearing a lot of hats I think is good, and especially in today's job market. Um, you know, I, I think that there's sometimes a disconnect between the type of training that museums want and then in reality what they're asking um, people to do. So like, okay, to be a curator, you need to have a PhD in a really specific field and, you know, you need to specialize, 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 and then you need to work in museums a lot, and then maybe we'll hire you. But in reality, they're asking that curator to balance budgets, to be a project manager, to do social media, perhaps, maybe even write some blog posts, um, you know, be on Facebook, um, to help out with the marketing strategy for their exhibitions, to um, create publications. And, and so when you see a PhD program, say in art history, that's really training someone to be a scholar, and a professor to teach um, and say, you know, for example, I considered staying on um, at Oxford for my PhD and, and perhaps specializing in vernacular photography in West Africa. And let's say we put a date on it too, because most dissertations require that from 1962 to 1968. You now have a PhD in a really rarefied area. And can you get hired as a professor? That's one thing. Um, can you get hired on a, in, in a museum to be an Africanist? And can you get hired on, a, or could you maybe be a, a curator of photography? Um, probably not. There are probably one or two positions in the whole entire world every year in those areas. And so um, 
you know, I, I think that having to wear a lot of hats forces you to be trained in a lot of different areas that, in, especially in small museums, but really in any museum is going to be is going to be happening more and more. People have lean, leaner and trimmer staff. People um, often are working with smaller budgets today. Um, the federal grants may or may not be there. And so you have to be able to do a lot of different things at once. The other thing is, is that since I work at a small institution, without my PhD, I was able to work in a curatorial role. And that's really my passion. Um, I said I liked the long form, and I still do. I like storytelling with objects. I trained as a material anthropologist. So um, how do objects tell stories? How does that story change versus where that object is being used, when it's being used, who is it being used by? Um, so the sort of social lives of things aspect. Um, and that's, that's really my passion. And so curatorial work, I would say, is my passion. And so in a smaller institution, I'm able to, to do that. And I'm able to hopefully influence our exhibition program as well, um, which I find especially rewarding on a college campus, where then um, you're getting professors involved in teaching surrounding an exhibition, and you have a lot of student programming, and a lot of interesting collaborative programming you can do across the university space. So th those are some things I would say. The other thing is, is just that I have a $0 budget for digital at my current institution. So when you're thinking about creating a mobile app, for an individual temporary exhibition, that's just not feasible. It's insane. I mean, how can you even right. get the content created for it? How do you have 15 grand to plop down on that? Especially when we don't charge admission, we don't charge admission, and we're a nonprofit. You know, and then let's say we do a, a larger, um, you know, web-based app or a, a mobile app for the museum at large to do like special tours or something like that. There, I don't find that there are a lot of great built-out solutions out there for that kind of a thing. I mean, there are certainly companies that give you basically a content management system that you can drop content into, but are they going to suffice? Um, and then, you know, you have the whole logistics issue. Okay, so we live in a pretty poor area here. Um, I think nowadays you can assume that most people are probably going to have a smartphone, but to be accessible, you should probably have some type of a device that people can check out. We have a really limited staff. We barely even have any you know, guards. We have like one guard on, on duty at all times. Um, we have a student worker in a store upstairs. Who's going to pass out that? Who's going to take the, the collateral so that someone can check out an iPod or an iPhone or an iPad? Um, and then you know, when it breaks, who's going to maintain it? So right. currently, we have almost no in-gallery technology. And in fact, I tend to air towards doing really low tech, like post-it notes or response areas. Um, or, um, you know, I just worked on an exhibition that was on the Gilded Age and consumerism during that time period. And so we had a guessing game about what piece of serving where, what was it, what was it used for? And, and that just tends to work better in this space. I'd love to implement more digital in the future, um, but I, I'm still unsure of exactly what that would look like. Very interesting. So because there's kind of two follow-up questions to that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because most of your space is low digital, um, how does then the, the museum website fill into that? Do you use it to kind of fill a gap, or is your site, is your goal for the site um, more just information about the museum itself. Right. Or is it, yeah. I would say that it is, it is primarily more informative. Um, I would love to change that. Like, for example, I would love for us to be blogging so that that way um, just there are more search results and just more awareness of all the different projects that we're doing. So, for example, our curator of education is doing some really interesting new projects um, to try and involve underserved areas of our community. So. She just started a, progr a program called Vamos al Museo, and um, she's a native Spanish speaker, and we have a large um, Spanish-speaking population locally at a particular public school. They actually happen to be, a lot of those students happen to be Mayan and, and speak Mayan dialect, and so we have a, a, a translator come in and actually translate for them as well in case they don't speak Spanish. 
And these are kids that have never been to a museum before, um, so we're providing busing and then um, Spanish and Mayan language programming for them. So she should be blogging about that. I mean, we have it on our yes. website. We have it on our website calendar. We mentioned on social media. We have albums up on social media. But I want her to have, like, a more long-form way to talk about that. And, you know, we certainly do that in some of our print, our print media um, and in our monthly e-newsletters. Um, but I, I would love to have more of that content online. It's just difficult whenever you have a very small staff to, to get the same buy-in um, that I spoke about before with the Bigger Picture blog to try and, you know, get these same people to be um, producing weekly content for, um, for that blog. We also have the challenge um, – of being housed within a university, so we only have so much control over our website as well. We have to use a template that's provided to us by um, the University of Tennessee. So, for example, um, this is recorded, but I'm going to say it anyway. There is side-level navigation with um, no drop-down, no, no hover-over drop-downs, and I know that this is perhaps that something that people are moving away from, but I hate the navigation on our site so much. <laughs> I despise it. But I don't have any control over that. I have to work within a template um, there. We also have an area on our website that is meant to highlight the research that's going on within the, um, the museum because we have millions of archaeological collections. And we also have tens of thousands of um, natural history specimens, specifically mussels collections here. And we can talk about the weird reasons why we have strong collections in both of those areas, <laughs> just like many university museums have, have odd pockets of focus. Um, but that our, our own self-published um, research, uh, what do I want to call them? They're called actually research notes and research papers on our website. Um, most of them are from the past. It's been hard to convince people to continue to write for that. And, and they're static. They're, they're not really made. It's sort of like just plopping a paper online. And so um, I look forward to perhaps, especially once I offload some of my, my duties, um, to look forward to sort of thinking about the ways that we can present our ongoing research in a more dynamic manner. Um, and, you know, I think that that's something that um, you've probably talked about a lot in your class, but you don't make something digital and then treat it like it's flat paper format, right? You don't right. Um, just publish a monograph online and, and say, oh, it's digital. I mean, yes, it's great that there's text recognition then and someone could search for it, but the digital should really be doing something different than the paper copy would do. Um, and, right. and so that's definitely a goal of mine moving forward is to think more dynamically about how um, to make our website do more. Um, the only constantly changing content there is we sort of have an object of the week. Um, and I've allowed my curatorial interns to take over that area because it gives them a chance to do curatorial research, um, and it gives us a chance to integrate that research back into our own um, object database, our own museum database, and, and to sort of work on a blog-like feature, although, again, it's mainly just an image and a short description of the object rather than... Um, you know, some lengthier storytelling, so. Okay, and you mentioned that your interns are um, working on the site. Because you have so many responsibilities and your staff is small, who is involved in dealing with the website and the web content? Is it everyone have a piece in it or is it just a few people? Um, so I manage just the day-to-day, -day, just like, you know, give me your images, Give me your text, and I'll I'll put it on there. And then you know, just doing simple things like changing out the sliders on our homepage to advertise our most um, our, our most current exhibition or programming that we have tomorrow or this weekend. Um, and then you know, I just ask people pretty frequently to to provide content. Um, but you know, we do have other members of staff that can like update a calendar or update text on a page. But I'm the main person that manages the content. Um, Okay. And you've mentioned a few things that you would love to change on the site. You did a website redesign a few years ago, correct? Mm-hmm, I did. Can you tell me a little bit about that process? Absolutely. Um, well, that was the first time that the museum had had anyone on staff that could even make updates to the website, which is pretty <laughs> crazy. We had someone in the office of, of IT basically for the whole entire university 
making even minor text updates for us, which, as you can imagine, oh, was wow. super, super inefficient. Um, yeah. And so, you know, as soon as they were like, we work on WordPress, I was like, no problem. I can do WordPress. That is very easy. And, and as you know, more and more um, content management systems are WYSIWYGs. So even right. if you're not a coder, you can jump on there and you can change content pretty readily. Um, so uh, the, the thing that I really tried to have us do is staff had never really been involved in conversations about who is our audience. And of course, I think, as you might imagine, what happens at most museums, you'd be surprised, is everyone's our audience. Everyone, <laughs> everyone, everyone. And then you're like, well, actually, they're not. Um, everyone cannot be your audience. That's crazy. So I, I did a lot of digging about who is our visitorship, um, who comes to our current website, and you know how do we sort of divide up those audiences and give them the types of content that we need that they need? Um, so you know, for example, professors, what kind of information do they need from from the museum? And K twelve educators, what kind of information do they need from the museum? And these are you know people that are mainly regional. And then you know we could we really mainly um, see a lot of visitors from this region, say you know a hundred miles, give or plus from the Knoxville area, but because we're near the, the Great Smoky Mountain National Park as well, which is the most um, well-visited national park in the U.S., we do get some of that tourist traffic. So how do we give them the information that they need? And then, as you know, metrics can be deceiving for something like that because your bounce rates can be bad on your homepage, but if a half of your audience is simply coming to your website to see you know, what your hours are and if parking is free um, and that's prominently featured before the fold on your website, that doesn't necessarily mean that your bounce rate from your homepage means bad things for you right. as an institution. So we just did a lot of poking around in there, and, and I think that was really helpful for me, especially early on in my career at the McClung, because I also got a sense from each different I would say department, but that's kind of hilarious. Each different single person who heads up what is basically <laughs> a department at the museum about who are your stakeholders. Um, if, if you were in charge of the website, like what information would you make sure that you have on there? And we've recently gone to another updated template, but at that point we didn't revisit those audiences and that content um, simply because, again, of the just wearing so many hats. And so I actually look forward to when there's another change in template, which I guess you can pretty much um, estimate at a university would be every four years or so. Um, when we jump into that new template, I want us to revisit our audiences, what kind of content that we want to be producing. And then at that point, I would also really push for us to do um, something like a blog or to visit, you know, revisit the idea of having some online exhibitions as well. And then how do we do that when we're working within a pretty static template that's provided by the university? You know, how much can I get the university to, to create a special template for us for exhibitions? And a lot of times what the answer is, is I need to know exactly how many images, I need to know exactly what your content is so that we can tailor the site exactly to that. But, you know, is there any way that we can talk about creating, you know, something more loosey-goosey, some type of a, a, of a template that could be used for any number of different types of exhibitions with just like, right. you know, different digital features on it? Interesting. Um, so I take it you do find kind of the set template and the box you're locked into a little frustrating? Uh, sometimes, yes. On the other hand, whenever you're talking, like I just, you know, for like I said, I, I don't like the navigation. Um, on the other hand, when your website is mainly used for information, which, to be honest, like even if I'm looking at the Smithsonian Institution Archives website, they're producing some cool online exhibitions and they're producing, um, you know, this blog. But uh, the the broadest portion of any Smithsonian Museum's website is doing the same thing too. It's 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 mainly right. telling you like who are we, what do we do here, how do you come to us, um, you know, what kinds of resources do we have. You know, a template isn't necessarily a bad thing. You don't need it to do anything magical. Um, you know, you just need to provide a map and tell people about your parking or, or, you know, tell people where your finding aids are or provide access to your collections database if you can. And, and so, you know, you don't need to reinvent the wheel for something like that. Right. And then 
the university, I guess, then provides your IT support needs as well. They do. They do. They they provide. That's huge. And in terms of our budget, if we didn't have that, um, we would have. That would be such a huge hole for us. Um, So they're they're providing that um, that I all of that IT support. They're providing servers for us. I, I can't actually imagine <laughs> what we would do without it at the same time. So when you work at a larger institution, when you're a museum that's housed in a, in a larger institution, you, I think you understand, and I totally appreciate the fact that you have to sort of color within the lines in order to get the benefits um, that that institution can provide you as well. You know, mm-hmm. and I don't mind staying in brand, in brand, for example, you know, I don't mind using the university's color scheme because, if anything, you know, the University of Tennessee is more well-known than the McClung Museum. So letting people know that we're a part of the university, I think, benefits the university and it also benefits us. That's true. That's a good point, yeah. It's in our best interest to make that clear. I'm sorry, what was it? I said it's in our best interest, you know, to make – to operate within – well within the realm of the university, in other words. Right. So you mentioned that um, you're going to be letting go of some responsibilities? Yes, I am. Um, We are about to hire a graphic designer here. We've never had that service. That's another thing that we outsource at the university is our graphic design goes to the the university's creative communications office. They produce – for example, anything from our rack cards to invites for our openings and, and other paid events, um, digital screens that go around campus, things like that. And, and we'll be hiring someone on that will do that, and then that person will also really kick up our exhibition design a notch because we're looking for someone that can help produce exhibitions, design for exhibitions, and, and help produce all the graphics for that. And that person will also take over our e-marketing, so all of our e-news, um, hopefully some website updates. They'll also be doing some photography and and potentially helping out with the dams because, you know, that's another thing I do is I'm trying to organize all of our digital, our born digital files, uh, help archive all the materials that are at the museum, including keeping track of our photos and and, um, best practices in terms of naming for those. Sometimes I do photography a little bit myself. <laughs> so it will be great to have that person. And then I hope in the future that we can also hire someone on to do PR and marketing. Because, again, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not working on campaigns. I'm just sort of getting, out, getting done what I can during the day in terms of writing a press release, giving that to the central, um, central office here at the university to help disseminate, um, you know, sending out e-news communications. But, you know, in terms of being strategic, in terms of having something going on, like the types of uh, content that someone like the Smithsonian can produce for social media um, or someone like the Field Museum, I mean, Brain Scoop, something like that, um, you know, there's, there's just no way that I can do that. And if we had someone else, you know, helping out with PR and marketing, and we had a graphic designer, I think we could really kick up that content quite a bit. Um, And I'm also stepping back from social media a little bit, too, just because I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) Which I would be really interested to hear a student, a current student perspective. I feel old. I mean, I guess I'm not really old. I'm 33. But um, just, uh, you know, how graduate students are thinking about that. If, If they're thinking of going into career in museums, I'm totally comfortable with the fact that I might be blogging and that I might be producing some, um, you know, helping to come up with a strategy for an exhibition or for, um, you know, targeting specific museum audiences and and helping with that and even composing tweets, helping come up with an editorial um, calendar or something like that. But to be honest, I don't want to be on Facebook all day. And I don't want to be on Twitter all day. And I don't want to have to keep up with every single new, um, you know, social media platform that gets, created. I, I guess I'm experiencing a lot of fatigue, and I guess I feel like I know quite a few other museum professionals um, that have that fatigue, and it's like I worked on that in my 20s when I had that sort of energy, and I was, I was really intrigued by that, and, um, you know, for various reason, reasons, including personal ones, um, in the past year, or the past two years, I've had a kid, and I've also been diagnosed with cancer, and so my priorities right now have really shifted. They're, my, my priorities are that, you know, we, I work in a museum, and I'm so lucky to have a job that I am 
so, so passionate about. I love what I do every single day. Um, but I'm also not saving lives. I don't work in an ER. Um, and, you know, even though I think a lot of museum folks would tell you differently, like, I, I don't think that there's a need to be on a 24-hour news cycle in a museum space. Um, I just think that, in general, workplaces are going to experience more and more people with burnout, if that's the expectation. And I, I do realize that there are exceptions to the rule. I mean, whenever we have an event on a weekend, um, I'm happy to post on social media. And then I share social media duties across the museum with other folks. So if it's education's event, they're amazing. They take great photos. They do a Facebook Live video, and they put it all up themselves. Um, or if it's a special event, our special events person will do that. Um, if it's our academic programs arm and they're working with university students, I'll often snap a photo and, and put it online. So I, I do get to outsource a lot of that. Um, and you know, if you work at the National Zoo and an animal dies, you probably need to respond to that immediately. Um, if there is some kind of safety scare at your institution, you need to respond to that immediately. If it's an event that's going on right now in your edit, just you know, go ahead and, and create a photo album. Go ahead and put some images up, some video up, Instagram it. That's fine. But you know, if someone has a question about when to register for an event, it really can't wait till the next business day. Right. Um, and so <laughs> I know that I would be interested. I would love to have the debate with someone because I'm sure a lot of people maybe don't feel that way. Um, but that's just sort of how I feel about it, I guess. Um, I just don't see the advantage of that. And my priorities have shifted. Like my focus right now is my, on my family and, and my friends and then, you know, also my job, but, but not just on my job anymore. And I think that that perhaps has to do with age too, not just with cancer and a kid, but, you know, you kind of reach a midpoint in your career and you're still hustling. You still want to be passionate about what you want to do, but the hustle and like the need to like do every single internship and work extra hours for free at every single place, which believe me, I did for a decade, it, it kind of um, recedes and, and you realize, okay, like I'm in a solid place in my career. And you have to make that decision as a human in the world, what are my priorities going to be? And maybe it is your job. Maybe, maybe that's who you are. Maybe that's how you're going to define yourself and you want to spend 24-7 on your job. And especially in the world, world of academia, I think that's really common. You know, if you're talking with a professor, even when they're not teaching classes, they're reading scholarship, they're prepping for a new class, you know, they're, they're publishing themselves so they can get tenured. Um, but that's a choice, too, you know. Um, I have a husband who's a professor, and he works 8 to 5, and that's a choice. He always is at office hours. He publishes a lot. He teaches his classes, but he comes home, and we, we decide to be together. Um, and so I think, you know, that's sort of my perspective right now, too, is, is what's important in life? What are you going to decide to prioritize for the rest of your life? And my job is way up there, but friends and family are even before it, I guess I would say. I don't know. How do you that's feel about social media? Do you do social media for an institution? Have you in the past? I have, and... Um, I think you're right that it, it takes a kind of a different mindset um, and you have to know that you're, you're kind of connected to your phone. You, you know, you're always, exactly. you're always ready to be on if you need to be. Um, so it, it takes a certain willingness to, to always be on like that because, you know, right now, like you said, there's some expectation that people, your followers, will get an immediate response, and you'll respond to right. to everything you know that comes up. So it's a great point. As a as a follower, I'm assuming that you follow other social media accounts. Is that an expectation that you have that you will have an immediate response? Personally, for me, no, <laughs> because yeah. um, I know I you know manage social media for an association, so I know that there is a person back there who probably has a lot of things going on. Other than Twitter, um, so it. But I think I know people who really expect um, the people they follow and the organizations they follow to constantly be on and always be right. posting. And I think they might think that there's a whole team back there, and some organizations do have whole teams, which right. is really beneficial, and you can tell uh, in their social media. Um, but a lot of organizations and small museums don't have that, as you've pointed out. 
Yeah, and I think that that's, you know, that's something that, you know, y you as a museum professional and institutions have to think about is if we don't have a team, how much can we manage? And, you know, let's assume that every single social media platform is going to take you five hours a week. So how many can you do feasibly? And can you be really right. feasible about that? And then what are your metrics going to be? Are you, are you just throwing stuff out there into the void? Or are you going to make sure that, you know, there's, there's analysis, that there are analytics? You know, what are your goals with that social media? And, you know, for us, for example, you know, it's maybe getting people to um, sign up for a paid event. You know, that's, that's a great, very feasible goal. Or um, it's to get more professors to know that they can schedule classes within the museum. We have an object study room where professors can come in and they're like, I'm teaching a class on, you know, gender roles in the early 19th century. And we're like, okay, we can run with that. We'll get you some objects that we can use and really teach with dynamically in that space. And, you know, and if, if another professor knows about that because of our social media, that's great. But, you know, if you're just simply <clears throat> posting stuff and throwing it into a hole and you don't really know what it's doing, I guess I would push back a little bit too and say, why are you doing that? And, and to think about where your audience is, you know, a lot of our fam we, we work with a lot of families too, and even our professors, Facebook probably is one of the main places that they are. It is a little bit more long form. Um, you know, we're working with, with a lot of people that are sort of of the age group, but that's probably um, where they would be, and so we find a lot of traction there. You know, we, we get some bang for our buck in terms of spending time on posts there. In terms of students, you know, we're not on Snapchat. You know, we might have some more traction if we did, but I would still want us to define our goals for for UT students. Do we just do we want more feet in the door? Do we want them just to be engaging with the museum? Do we want more brand traffic to our website? You know, what are we trying to do with those students? Um, and and so I think that that's what's really important to define. And I think perhaps you know most institutions do that now. When I first started doing social media and web. You know, even having metrics period was like, wow. Like, I remember I was at the Smithsonian when they were first putting together, like, a, a digital, like, wiki. And they were asking a lot of these questions. And, you know, internally it was like, wow, we're such a dinosaur. Like, we've, we've not even done any of this yet. And then you had some really dynamic folks like Effie Capsalis, who I was working with, that were really pushing the conversation forward and, and were um, – so she allowed me to really help be involved in the strategy, which I really valued um, so much in terms of learning about what are we trying to do and how do we get there and what metrics are associated with that. And then working in the government, that's what they want to see from you. They want to say, we need to see metrics, we need to see numbers, <laughs> and we wanted to make those numbers meaningful. So how many people are clicking through a blog post to the object that that's about? And then what do they do? Do they, um, you know, we had some things designed out on our website at the Smithsonian Institution Archives where you could print that record or you could email an archivist and say, I'd like to see this record or can you send me more information about this or that you could bookmark it. You know, those are all like very concrete metrics that someone is interested in that object because of the blog post. So we're spending, you know, X number of hours a week on this blog you know, are we actually getting something out of it? And then there are the intangibles, of course, goodwill, um, and, and not just like numbers or eyeballs on a page, but, mm -hmm. you know, the kinds of social inter media interactions that you have, the, um, you know, the subjective stuff that's also good. We always screenshotted a lot of that and sent it to our director and, and to other administrators at the Smithsonian. And I do the same now. I, I you know, I screenshot that kind of stuff and send it to my director here um, and to our chancellor. You know, I try and streamline where it's possible to. Like I made an RSS feed of um, our press that we receive, and I just, you know, send that RSS feed via email or, you know, whatever to other people um, on our staff that deal a little bit with PR and marketing as well. So I don't even know yes. where we were going from there. but. <laughs> <laughs> Well, where we ended up was great. So, um, you made a good point. You museums really need to weigh kind of the, the time they're putting into something like social media versus the benefits, and if they could be using that time, that would be more somewhere else. Using that time and that right that people power somewhere else that could be more beneficial. Yeah, that's something I'm thinking about a lot right now, and I'm sure a lot of people are. It's you know. There are a lot of social justice issues on everyone's minds right now because of so many things that have happened in the past couple years. And it's like, should we be making sure that 
little kids who've never been to a museum before and have a language barrier are coming here? Or should I be having that person spend 10 hours a week on social media? And so right. especially when you're in a small institution, you have to prioritize. You have to say, what's more important, this programming or the social media associated with it? Or, you know, hopefully in an ideal world, you can come up with some streamlined way to do a little bit of both. Um, and that's something that I feel like I'm constantly trying to wrap my head around. Um, but, you know, an average day for me looks like I'm writing a collections plan. We don't even have a great collections plan in place here. I wrote, you know, justification for two acquisitions today. I'm working on a deaccession plan and all the documentation for that. I wrote two press releases. I had um, two exhibition meetings, each totaling, you know, total, in total lasting four hours. Um, I created, you know, several e-newsletters. I looked through five applications for our graphic design position. I made a couple updates on our website. And, you know, it just feels very <laughs> schizophrenic sometimes. Okay. So you kind of have to figure out, you know, that's the big question, I guess, for everyone is, is, is what are you going to prioritize right now? And then how, for me, it is a personal challenge. Like, how are we going to tell stories that don't get told? I mean, that was always why I wanted to work in a museum. My, my, if I look back at my career, I look back at the exhibitions I've produced and the stories I've worked on, they all have to do with, like, hidden people, you know, hidden stories, colonialism, museums, and collecting, putting other people's culture on display and the politics of that, um, you know, sort of related travel, world's fairs, 19th century photography, um, collecting, why do people collect, how do they collect, and, you know, you, you see this thread that runs through, and, you know, how do you, I don't know, I, I guess for me right now, that's what's bubbling up to the surface and the storytelling surrounding that. And so um, how do I do more of that? And, then, and, and how do we prioritize um, telling those hidden stories right now, especially in the political climate right now? How do we tell more of those stories? How do we get more people of color? How do we get more poor people in? I mean, Appalachia is, a, is an area of the country that um, I don't want to reinforce stereotypes. I am from here, so I feel like I can say some of this. That there, there are not that many arts organizations compared to other places. There's not a lot of wealth here. There are a lot of audiences that, that really um, don't have access to institutions like ours. And so, you know, how do, we, how do we do that? And maybe once we analyze those audiences, I'll decide, you know, maybe it is worth spending more time on social media because if we're tweeting out in Spanish and we have, you know, followers that are, um, you know, leaders in these communities, Maybe that will help people, um, you know, know that we're here or know about our programs more. But I guess I'm still wrapping my head around what that will look like, too. We need more people. We need more money. <laughs> <laughs> it always comes back to that, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> so do you know of any trends or any projects or is there anything, you know, in your dream world that you could put together to bring that storytelling to museum, museums on the web and kind of their digital content? Sure, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, think, I think a lot of the exhibitions I'm working on myself are, are trying to do that very thing. And some of them are exhibitions that are made by other people. Um, like, for example, upcoming in um, September of 2018, we're going to have the exhibition for all the world to see, visual culture and the struggle for civil rights, and that's an NEH on the road show. Um, and you know, for a show like that, that's that's targeting so many things and has recently been updated to address issues like Charlottesville um, or something like that. You know, the the web really has the potential to expand the content that you can't show in the space itself. Object labels need right. to be 50 words. That's, we have, I set the standards or help set the standards in my own institution for really trying to keep um, legibility and just accessibility in our, in our exhibition spaces by saying, okay, you get, you get 50 to 60 words to write a, an individual object label, 75 words to write a group label, and, you know, our intro texts are like, you know, didactic texts really need to be like 100 to 150 words. And so when you're trying to tell a story of something like civil rights or you're trying to bring in contemporary events, to something like that. I mean, it would be really powerful to have a section of your blog that was talking about current day events and, um, you know, current leaders 
in terms of civil rights issues in your own community and really tying in those local communities into the museum and to an exhibition that you're working on currently. Having professors um, that do scholarship in that area at the university write something about that. Um, or there are just a tremendous number of resources online. And you know, even though we don't like link dumps um, you know, in terms of the web, that's not super awesome just to have a big link dump. On the other hand, being able to have a lot more photos for an exhibition like that, being able to have a list of resources for teachers, being able to put lesson plans online, um, and that's really important. That helps the story of that exhibition go beyond like the month, the two months it's going to be here and beyond the walls of the museum. And I think that should be the goal of, of most museums' web projects is that maybe someone can't walk in your door, or maybe they do, but how do you, how do you extend that visit? How do you make them a lifelong supporter? Or if they're not anywhere near you geographically, how do you give them resources that might help them in their own classroom bring history to life um, or engage people in their community that have felt neglected? Does that uh, make sense? Uh, yes, that's fantastic. Um, I know that you have quite a bit going on, so uh, we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Your, your insight into this world was incredibly interesting and helpful, and um, I'm sure my classmates will find it useful as well. Well, it was truly my pleasure, and I would actually love to hear what you all have to say about where you all are thinking that your careers will be going and, and what you all are thinking about this topic. So I would really love it if you could send me any comments or just like let me know how the class discussion goes, because Absolutely. I have a lot of interns here. Um, that I work with, and I love working with my curatorial interns and my media interns here, um, but we don't have a museum studies program um, at the University of Tennessee. We hope to have one in the future, but we don't currently. And so it's great for me to sort of be able to have a finger on the pulse of what current museum studies students and, and other future museum leaders are thinking about in this area, too. Like, I'd love to be able to share that with my own students. So I'll look forward to hearing back from you. Yes, I'll absolutely gather those comments and send them your way. Great. Wonderful. Well, it was so nice to speak with you, and good luck. And thank you so much again. Okay, thanks. Bye. Right, bye.